Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And you can follow along in your worship guide or your copy of the Word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Hey guys, I just want to introduce our guest speaker today, uh, J.D. Meter. Um, J.D. Uh, is head of the Greensboro Fellows Program and pastor. At, I got a little shout out back there. There you go. Fellow. Uh, um, fellow, fellow. Fellow, fellow. Um, J.D. Uh, is also a pastor at Redeemer um, Anglican Church here in, here in town. And uh, he's also a friend of many of us in this room and uh, son-in-law of Barbara and Scott Thomas. I don't know if you want to be associated publicly with them. Or Absolutely. Not. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I get nothing done in this city <laughs> apart from them. Um, and Catherine, his wife, is here. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're excited to have you. Thanks for preaching for us, brother. Let me, let me pray for you. Um, Father, uh, would you speak powerfully through uh, the words of J.D. and through your scripture here? Um, would you speak powerfully into our hearts? Uh, may we uh, have our hearts open and ready to receive these words, um, that they may change us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Harrison. Love that. It is a good morning. Um, thanks for that introduction. If we haven't met before, my name is J.D. Meter. I do want to be your friend. I'll hang out in the lobby afterwards. And um, yeah, I serve on staff in a different church here in the city. It's uh, called Church of the Redeemer, like you said. It's an Anglican church. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'm just really excited about what God seems to be doing amongst the Big C Church here in our city. Um, and I'm encouraged by what he's doing here. So it's a gift. I mean, it really is a gift to be with you. Um, I will, yeah, I will mention my in-laws are the coolest, and I've found that if you want to get stuff done, like you just drop their name. So I wear that with a badge of honor. That's really, really probably what most of you know me for here in this room. And there's worse things you could be known for, you know? So um, I am married to, to Catherine, which is the best, and we have two young kids that are currently likely wreaking havoc with what seems like 1,000 children that you have at this church. I was just sitting here, and I, was, it was, I kept waiting, and the wave just kept coming. And I'm, I know there's more back there, so I don't, I don't know how you guys manage children's ministry, but it's got, it's an anointed spiritual miracle that you guys pull that off. I have two of them, and my house is constantly dirty, so we praise God for all the work you guys are doing. Vocationally, I, I wear a couple hats at the church. Harrison mentioned this, but I lead the Greensboro Fellows Program, if you guys haven't heard of that before. What we do is, uh, for folks that have just finished college, so recent college graduates, I go out and recruit folks from really all over the country to come here to Greensboro. 
um, to really be intentional with that transitional season of their life. So we find them work and a host home. We do theological classes. We disciple them. And the idea is that you want to start well and start with intentionality. And so if you're interested in that kind of faith and work conversation, if that's something that you'd be interested in, I'm always, always interested in talking to people um, about hosting fellows or employing fellows or just being my friend, whatever that looks like, I'd, I'd love to chat with you about that too. Um, I don't get to come to Hope Chapel as often as I'd like, but I, I don't feel like a stranger here at all. I've, I've been coming to Hope Chapel a couple times a year for like 11 years now, and it started when I was a college student. I went to Clemson University because uh, I'm a genius, and that's not true, but I do like college football, and I feel like I've come to carry the message of college football here to North Carolina. Um, oh, you guys didn't like that? Yeah, I'm so, so sorry. We win at a high level. Um, I studied a lot of different things at Clemson, but what I really majored in was Young Life. And uh, it was, if you don't know Young Life, it's a great ministry. Um, and what I really focused on was the most beautiful woman that I've ever seen in my life who happened to be on my Young Life team. But she's not just beautiful, she's also really discerning and wise. So she placed me in the friend zone for about two and a half years, which she's a good judge of character like that. And so for two and a half years, I just kind of didn't date people and hoped that one day I would get to date her. This may be encouraging for some young men in the room, but I actually escaped that friend zone. And uh, it was awesome. We started a date after she graduated. She's from here in Greensboro. Her name's Catherine, spoiler alert. And um, we came up to visit and uh, spent a weekend at the Thomas household. It was such a gift. And Sunday morning comes around. I'm wondering when we're going to hit the road and head back to town. And they asked if I would like to come to church with them. This is free advice for any of you guys. If you want to marry someone's daughter and they ask you to go to church, the answer to that riddle is yes. So hop in the car, and uh, I didn't really ask a lot of questions about where we were going, but I was excited to go. And we're driving, and it's at y'all's old location. I didn't know Greensboro at the time. And so we're on Spring Street, and everybody in the car starts doing the we're almost to church, but we're right on time shuffle. Do you know this? Like, let me grab my Bible. Let me grab my journal. I don't know what the weather's going to be like. Let me get a sweater to go inside, right? They start doing all that. And I'm looking out the windows. I'm not seeing any churches. I'm seeing bars. And, and there's this giant sign. Like, uh, I'll never forget it. It's like 913 Whiskey River Bar thing. And then Scott Thomas puts on his blinker and turns in there. And I, I'm just like, I thought I was getting to know these people. Like, what kind of church? What are we doing here? And... Um, Turns out you guys were kind of tucked away back there, and it was this welcoming, amazing community. Um, I, somebody I didn't even know just kind of grabbed my arm and led me over to free coffee and a great evangelism tool if you're in your young 20s, donut bites, which I praise God are still here. So I've had like six of them this morning. Um, it's just a really welcoming, good place, and it's become one of our favorite rhythms when we would visit to come up here and sit under your teaching and just be a part of this community. So it's a gift to be back. And we live here now. We've lived here for the last two years. And it's, it still remains the same of seeing the faithfulness of God here at Hope Chapel and being really welcomed here at Hope Chapel and befriending a lot of you in the room in the big C church of what God is doing. And I know, I don't want to be like disingenuous, I know that it hasn't all been like sunshines and daffodils the last few years. Like I recognize that there's been some really difficult things that have gone on and a lot of people are in process. I get all of those things but maybe it's helpful just as like an outsider's perspective or a fan's perspective that the faithfulness and the resilience of this church really speaks loudly to our city of the faithfulness of God. 
And a lot of us in other churches, or maybe people who will never set foot in a church, see what's happening here and are encouraged by it. Um, And so we need you to keep doing it. We need you to keep going. We need you to keep serving and doing the good things that you're doing. And um, it's really going to strengthen and bring flourishing and shalom to our city. Um, In that Big C Church theme, I nailed this transition, right? Big C Church. That's what we've been talking about in the book of Romans. Um, I'm I'm continuing. It's been this idea. How do we be better members of the Big C Church, of our city, of the world, of what God's doing? Um, And I'm going to lead us in our reading this morning. We're starting a new chapter, Romans chapter 3. Um, Just a reminder for those of you who have been here, or maybe you've listened online like I have, Harrison's really portrayed, I think really effectively, that this passage, this letter, is is certainly Paul writing to the church in Rome, but really what it is, it's it's a letter from God through the Apostle Paul to all of us, to that big C church. And historically, this can be prevalent for where we're going this morning, um, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, and in a lot of Paul's writing, if you read your New Testament, there's very clearly this relational equity of him going back and forth with people that he knew. There's a lot of churches that he planted, a lot of churches that he visited very often. That's not the case here with the Roman church, right? Paul doesn't really know these folks that well, um, but he is very interested in making sure that they're all on the same page, okay? Um, In Paul's writing, you see this back and forth. You don't see that here. He didn't plant this church, but he does have a purpose in the letter that he's writing. Paul was very strategic in what he did. And his goal is he wants to see the Church of Rome united so it can be a home base for him so that he can take the gospel and plant churches east. He seems to have his sights on planting churches in Spain. And he did something really similar going west. He used Antioch as a home base and planted churches that way. But he's hearing some feedback from the Roman church. There's some disagreement going on amongst the different house churches, specifically, as you guys have harped on the last few weeks, between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? There's clearly some disagreement that's going on. Um, and it's, it's been a little bit heavy, right? It's that all of us are actually under the judgment of God. And apart from Christ, there's really no hope, to, no matter what your background might be. Um, it's been very pastoral of Harrison. I've been listening in my headphones, and he's like, let me stop for a second. How are we doing? I'm like, I'm so glad you asked. Like, it is, it's a heavy truth, these first couple verses. And, and I'll assure you that in the weeks to come, it's going to get a lot more positive and and exciting. But in in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul takes this turn from focusing on the Gentiles, and he starts to focus specifically on the Jews, right? And and talking about this idea that even if you sit under the law and you try to follow the law, you keep the actions of the law, that it for you also is not going to be good enough under God's judgment. And so what Paul's going to do here in these verses that we're going to walk through here this morning is he's actually going from a Jewish perspective, going to push back on some of the arguments that he's just made in chapter 2. So he's, he's going to ask some questions, and then what we're going to see is he gives some very succinct but very effective answers to the questions that may naturally arise from a Jewish person living in Rome trying to follow this Jesus. And there's really a mix of two things that are happening, okay? First, Paul, um, he's not just pulling these questions out of thin air. These are not just red herring things that he's coming up with. In all likelihood, um, the Greco-Roman world was known. People could get around. People communicated effectively. It was not uncommon for a Jewish person in Rome of means to travel to Jerusalem for certain holidays. Word of what the disagreements are in Rome are getting out there. And so Paul has likely heard some of the ideas that are going to come through with these questions. He's not just pulling these out of thin air. 
right? He's either heard it from Rome or perhaps he's heard it from other Jews with churches that he's worked in who are trying to follow Jesus. So that's the first thing that could be happening. The second is that Paul himself likely really relates to these people. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul identifies himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law. He himself was a Pharisee. So Paul himself is very much a Jew. So some of these things may be something that he would ask, right? But he's not just a Jew. We know historically, we know biblically, again, strategically for Paul, he was also a Roman citizen. So these ideas of Roman culture and Roman idea mixed with Jewish influence meeting together, a lot of the questions that may come up this morning are questions that Paul himself may have been asking as he's trying to stay in step with the Spirit and follow this Jesus. Is this making sense? So there's really two things that are going on. They're not just random questions. They're not just a fake argument. But they're real, real theological things that need to be worked through specifically in a Jewish context. And so there's going to be three rounds of questions that you can break them up into different ways. I've broken them into three questions. The first question is, is we get questions on what are the advantages of following God? What are the benefits What's in it for them? What's in it for us? Then Paul moves to questions about the faithfulness of God. Is he faithful? What what do our actions have to do with this relationship to God's faithfulness? And then third, we look at the righteousness of God in a very similar way. And I think what we'll see this morning is that despite the difficult message that Paul has shared in Romans 1 and backs out of 1 and 2, and it's going to lead a little bit into here this morning, that what What Paul does through answering these questions is is really displays God's generosity, God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness, and that his righteousness is beyond question and beyond comprehension, okay? So if you have Bibles, it's helpful if you want to flip there with me. We're in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. This is the first round of questions talking about advantages. Paul says this. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Like we've just mentioned, Paul has gone on about how you too are under the same judgment as the Gentiles despite having the law. Um, and, and so these questions can feel a little bit weird, right? What's the point? If, if that's true, if we're still under the judgment, like what, what's, what, what, what's in it for me? Like is there any value in that? It may sound a bit spoiled, but I do think we should give some credit to the Jewish audience here. Um, these were people that didn't just talk about it, they were about it. A first century Jew were people that worked extremely hard to keep Torah. There were people that worked extremely hard to follow certain food laws, to live and work in a certain way, to rest in a certain way. This was not something that you showed up and did once a week. Every area of their life was affected by their Judaism. And so for Paul in chapter 2 to write to them and to say, hey, all of that is for naught when it comes to God's judgment, that is something that is not, not just bothersome, but likely deeply offensive. And so it can seem like a critical question. What's in it for me? What's the point? But in a strange way, I do find it to be relatable. Suffering in this life is a real thing. Following Jesus is not something that's particularly easy. And he actually makes it very clear in his Gospels, it's not going to be easy following this Jesus, right? He uses language like, take up your cross and follow me. He says things like, the one who loves his life is going to lose it, but the one who loves it will gain eternal life. He says, in this world you will suffer, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I had a seminary professor a few semesters ago use this quote, if you preach to suffering people, you're never going to lack an audience. Here's my thought this morning. This is true for me. It might be true for some of you in the room. 
Um, the idea of following Jesus in a way that works out really well for me in this life, I, I can wrap my head around that. But following Jesus in a way that's difficult and challenging, and all of a sudden the suffering is still coming, that might lead to some really weird questions. Some questions like this Jewish audience might have asked. Like questions like, is following this Jesus really worth it? When things get hard, are you ever tempted? I know I am with the question of, man, what is the actual point of trying to do this? What is the point of waking up early in the morning and getting the word? What's the point of sacrificing my time to Christian community? What's the point of laying down my life for this idea of the gospel, right? What's the advantage? What's the advantage of walking with God? And Paul, again, succinctly and efficiently in verse 2, he says this, much in every way. What he reminds the Jews and what I think Christ is reminding us this morning is that we, friends, have been given a lot. Not just in certain areas, but in every area of your life. The Bible's clear that every good thing actually comes from the Lord. We don't create anything. Nothing is actually ours. We're just stewards of the good things that God has made and that God has entrusted to us. What Scripture reminds us here is really what Paul's doing, much in every way, is a shift back, a reminder of, hey, what's the advantage? Let me just remind you of the character of God. And the character of God, you, you can't really escape it when it comes to Scripture. You can't escape it anecdotally in, in your walking with God. He is immensely generous. He just can't seem to help himself. This is the character of God. He is a giver. And the circumstances that Paul has laid out for this audience, that yes, they're under the judgment, you, our brains and their brains can wander away from that, right? Is God really generous? Or maybe a Genesis reference, did God really say? This is the age-old question of humanity. And what Scripture reminds us here um, is the character of God is that he does give. I'm going to throw a couple of verses at you for this, just maybe this will be helpful. Job 33, that's the oldest chronological book that you have in the Bible. It says this, Job says this, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty actually gives me life. The, some of the earliest verses we have show that God, this whole life that we have, it's actually just a gift from God. Psalm 37, this is character of God language, praising God language. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Paul makes clear to the Corinthians church in 1 Corinthians 15 that he gives us victory. That's just kind of who he is. That's what he does. 1 Samuel says that he gives rest from enemies. And then I thought this was the most memorized verse in the Bible, but Harrison showed me that it's not. John 3.16, right? The one that everybody loves to quote, stick it on a coffee mug, put it on the wall in the kitchen. It's a great verse. For God so loved his creation, the cosmos, the world. What did he do? He gave. That's what he does. In Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about the character of God, and he, he puts it this way. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, you, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? And these are just a snapshot, friends. I would encourage you to take some time this week and just look through how often God wants to and does give and give and give and give. And despite our circumstances and despite the sufferings that we might be feeling, the character of God giving does not change. This is who he is. This is the posture that he takes towards his church. This is the posture that he takes towards you and towards me. Ignatius of Loyola put it this way, God will not be outdone in generosity. 
There's lots of reasons to appreciate his gift. And so Paul succinctly goes, oh, what's the advantages? Much. You've been given a lot in every way, in every area, right? And then he continues. He says, to begin with, right? And look, that translation is fine. Your Bible may say first. It may say first of all. Not saying it's inaccurate, but in the Greek, the way that this reads, um, if you hear first in English, you're immediately going, well, what's second, right? To begin with, what's coming next? There is no next. He's not going to give a list. Another way that you could translate this that I think might be a little bit more effective towards where we're going this morning is to say primarily, most importantly, of the highest level of importance. You've been given much because it's the character of God in every way and of primary importance, the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. And so what Paul does here, what's the primary point that he makes to the advantages of what God's given? Scripture. This is the gift from God. And this doesn't just show up in Romans. He writes about it all the time. In 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, he's writing from a Roman prison, and he says that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, training, correcting, or rebuking in righteousness so that we'd be equipped for good works. What does Paul say? Like, don't you guys remember the biggest advantage you have at all, of all? Other groups in the world, they didn't get this, but I've given you in writing the very will and ways of God for you and for your benefit. It's a reminder of the high value that he puts on Scripture Paul says that the big advantage is that God has actually trusted you, trusted the people of Moses, trusted the people of Israel with his will and his ways. There's no other group in the world that had that. And when I think on that idea of, of what is, what's the argument here that he's making, like, don't you, like, isn't this just a gift? From an application standpoint, just on these first couple of verses, there's a lot that comes to mind, but really two things that, that jump out for me. The first is, as easy as it is, I've mentioned this, to rag on questions like these, like what's in it for me? Is there any advantage in walking with God? Um, I, too, often get caught up um, in my circumstances. And as a human being, I just tend to forget the unbelievable generosity and kindness of God. And friends, maybe this morning, it's just a good opportunity to be reminded that he gives, and he's given a lot. It's just who he is and what he does. And the second application is this high value on Scripture. It's a big deal for Paul. It's a big deal to the Jewish people. And it's a really big deal to Jesus Christ as he's speaking to us in this letter. Here's the convicting thing for J.D. Meter this morning. If you, friends, I don't know a lot of you in the room. There's only like three people who know how my calendar works. But if I were to share it with you, my calendar, my daily rhythms, my attitude does not line up with the primacy that this is actually, first of all, the best gift that God's given me. Like, my, my attitude towards Scripture does not reflect the language that Paul's using here. And it should. And I would challenge you this morning, like, perhaps this could be just a reminder that God has been generous with you, and perhaps, like, the people that he's writing to in this, they had about, they had some of this book, their deepest longing was for the rest of it that you and I just have right here in front of us. And our lives, I think, from an application standpoint, need to line up with that, right? So those are the first rounds of questions in terms of advantages. And then Paul moves on, and he's going to ask some questions about faithfulness, right? What if some were unfaithful? Does this faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? It can, again, be another round of seemingly odd questions. But, but the question's really, what if some of the Jews are unfaithful? 
Does that impact the faithfulness of God? There, there actually is a real problem that comes up in Paul's writings that, that it seems to be that the Jewish community is not taking to the gospel in the same way that the Gentiles are. The Gentiles are really getting it, and they're growing in numbers at a faster rate than the Jews in Rome and in other parts of the Mediterranean. And that is a real problem. But according to our text this morning, that doesn't seem to be the primary problem. The primary problem seems to be that there is a deep, deep and improper view of God. What Paul reveals here in these questions is the definition of bad theology. Theology matters, right? It leads to action. It leads to poor discipleship if we don't get this right. There's a quote that I say to our fellows all the time. It's by A.W. Tozer. He said this, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What pops in your head when you think about God? And the danger that pops up in this passage seems to be that these Jews, or maybe us, just human beings, can often begin to think that our actions, or our choices, or our lack of faithfulness will somehow change or impact the character of God's. And friends, if that is the thought pattern, what Paul's saying is here, you are in grave danger. That is not true. That is the definition of bad theology. I want to be very clear, and you guys make it clear from this church because you're a Bible-believing church. I'm grateful for that. God is sovereign, immovable, unshakable, consistent, and He is, no matter what you have to say about it, the very definition of faithful. And you and I um, should not be so haughty to think that there's something that we can do to change that. It's a ridiculous notion. R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, To say that God's sovereignty is limited by man's freedom is to make man sovereign. It's not a good idea. Spurgeon, I think, said something that really applies here. He said, The glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. God is the very definition of faithful, friends, and there's no amount of Jewish unfaithfulness or your and my unfaithfulness that's going to change the character of God. This is all through your Bible as well. I'm going to do the thing where I throw a bunch of scripture at you. You should look them up later, okay? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just that he'll forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What's the basis of God being able to purify us from unrighteousness? It's that he's faithful. 1 Corinthians 1, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Timothy 2, if we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't disown himself. It's the character of God. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. If you want to go Old Testament, you want to go way back there, Lamentations chapter 3, that's where we get the line that you've likely sung or professed, great is your faithfulness. Psalms, the Psalms can't get enough of it, right? But a couple ideas. Psalm 36.5, your love, O Lord, your love, Yahweh, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the skies. What's the psalmist saying? We can't go high enough. There's no limit on how faithful you are. Psalm 89.8, you, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. Are you getting the idea? God's really, 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 really faithful. Should have... Should have stopped at like three reallys. You ever make a mistake? Happened to me. Exodus 34. This is the last one I'll throw at you. And this is a huge text to a Jewish audience. The Exodus story is like the pivotal moment. Um, Moses is, goes up to get, to get another copy of, uh, of the law. 
And it says this in Exodus 34, verse 6. And he passed, that's God, in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. This is going to be him identifying himself. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Friends, what Paul does here to remind us in this series of questions is to remind the Jews and remind us even now that the Lord Jesus Christ is the very definition of faithful. It's who he is. We can't undo it. Which is why he's going to respond really strongly. What if some were unfaithful? Does this faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And it's strong language in your Bible, by no means, exclamation point. Okay? And that might sound strong now. In the Greek, this is the strongest phrase that Paul has access to. This is as a defiant a no as you're going to find from the Apostle Paul or the writers of the New Testament. This is by no means. Don't even allow that thought to enter your brain. If you think your unfaithfulness can impact God's faithfulness, throw it out. That's what Paul's saying here. It's the strongest language that he has. And then he goes into his own example, right? In in verse 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What's Paul saying? Like, it's not just about you. If some are unfaithful, what if every person on the planet were proved to be a liar, right? God would still be true. The creation does not get to determine the character of the creator. Even if every person on the planet took a different position, it's not changing who God is. And then he goes on in this next part and quotes Psalm 51 verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The context for this verse, I'm not going to go too in the weeds with this, but um, this is a verse that's written by King David, scholars think. And it's following, it's likely following David's greatest failure of his whole life. It's following his adultery with Bathsheba. It's following the murder of Uriah. It's following this public conviction from God's prophet Nathan And in David's greatest moment of failure, what he does is he turns to the Psalms and what he's essentially writing in this phrase is that he declares that despite my circumstances, despite what I've done in the lowest of the low moments, God is still just. And if that is true, friends, for King David, who's known as the greatest king of Israel, who was handpicked by God in the field, in the shepherd's field, who was the slayer of Goliath, who is known for being the one who's after the very heart of God. If it's true that he couldn't change the character of God, neither can we. He can't be moved and he can't be shaken. And from an application purpose, I would just throw this out there. Like there is something in my soul that when life is life and it's crazy and my son's screaming at 5.15 in the morning and I'm tired and I have to preach at this Hope Chapel church this is just a hypothetical situation (laughs) i love coffee thank you for it i need to be reminded that god's unmovable and unshakable there's just something in me that needs to know that needs to know that i have a safe place where i can lean he is faithful friends and paul's then going to move from faithfulness to righteousness verse five but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of god what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. I'm going to keep going here. Verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And these questions may seem a little bit repetitive. And I think that's intentional by Paul here. 
But what we're looking at once again is some pretty faulty logic, some pretty bad logic. If my sin makes God looks good, aren't I doing God a big favor just by continuing in my ways? It's the opposite side of the argument, right? If unfaithfulness or unrighteousness doesn't change God, then perhaps my unfaithfulness or my unrighteousness puts God on a platform to show his glory. Isn't that a good idea? And Paul, he uses that same hard language again, by no means the hardest no that he has to give. And again, I think it can look really bad when we read the text here, but I do think this reveals the human condition. It just does. We, friends, you and I, we are sinners. And without accountability, without this book that Paul's put such a high value on in this passage, our brains will actually lead us to a place of justifying sins. And we can do that in some pretty odd and some pretty illogical ways, just like this question reveals. And so I think Paul's doing here, and I think what Jesus Christ is doing to this letter written to the church is reminding us that, that your sin and my sin is not something to justify. Your sin and my sin is not something to be comfortable with. It is not something to joke about. It is something that the Lord Jesus Christ takes immensely seriously. According to this passage, what I see here, when Paul's going by no means, he's saying, like, you, you don't get comfortable with your sin. You need to actually make war with your sin. Agree with God with hating your sin. Friends, I know you know this, but it's worth saying over and over again, there is absolutely never, according to your Bible, there is no license to sin. It doesn't exist. And, and here would just be the challenge, because I've been in this in some seasons of my life. If we find ourselves this morning getting a little bit comfortable with sin in our life, if we find ourselves this morning justifying our sin amongst our community or our family, if we find ourselves justifying our sin to, to ourselves, or even worse, justifying our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we are in grave danger. Sin is not to be trifled with. Sin is not to be coddled with. Sin is to be defeated through the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what the Bible teaches. And, and the call here is very clear. Jesus says it over and over and over it's in Mark chapter 1, right? It's the first thing he says. I brought the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the call. Repent in the New Testament. It's a Greek word, metanoia. And, and it, I, I was once at this youth ministry event. I used to work for the summer camp ministry. And uh, there's this breed of people that are just fascinating. They're called youth interns. I, I love them. <laughs> they say some weird things sometimes, particularly at this camp I was at. And this youth intern, he couldn't have been 19 years old but he's talking to these middle schoolers, and he's letting them have it. Like, guys, we need to repent. We need to change everything. Not just a little bit. We need to do a full 360. And I'm watching these high schoolers, like, look at each other and be like, yeah. He, he was trying. Like, he really tried. And he met 180. It's fine. It's fine. Right? It's like, I don't want to sin anymore. Here you are. Right? That's not, that's not what they're going for. That's not what we're doing for. We, in theological terms, we call that a Christian twirl. Don't want that. It's not what we're looking for. Metanoia, it, it really means like change fundamentally your thinking. Change the way that you think. So what do we do when instead of being comfortable with our sin or coddling our sin? No, no, no. We repent. 
We change the very foundation of how we view this life around us. We change the way we think. We believe the gospel and repent. We don't just sit with it. We don't try to befriend it. Acts chapter 3 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Not close to you. Not something that you learn to deal with in this life. It's something that we reject. I'm not saying you won't struggle with sin, but I am saying sin is something that we reject from a biblical perspective. Psalm 103, this is one of my favorites, right? It's describing the relationship that God's going to have with sin. And it says this in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, right? As far as the east is from the west. If you're not good at geography, if you go east, you're going to keep going. You're never going to find west. If you go west, you're never going to find east. That's how far he desires to remove our transgressions or our sins from us. Sin, according to Paul here, unrighteousness is something to be rejected. It is not something to be comfortable with. God is extremely interested in taking sin away from us. He's extremely interested in removing sin from these Jewish folks. He's extremely interested in removing sin from you and me because he is righteous. You're going to talk more about that in in Romans chapter 3, I'm sure. It's going to break that out a little bit more. But the call, friends, this morning, according to Paul, according to Romans chapter 3, is despite where we land on the spectrum, if we're somebody who's been invited to church and you're a little bummed out that there's some guest preacher in a sweater, like, I don't know where you're at this morning, the call to you is to repent and believe the gospel. And if you're somebody who has been going to Hope Chapel for a long time, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and that sin is getting a little too close for comfort, the call to you today is to repent and believe the gospel. It's to throw off any chains that are holding us back. That's the call that Paul is talking about here this morning through these series of questions. But if though my lie, truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? By no means, friends. By no means. This is a rich passage. And I think what it shows us is is the character of God. I pray that you've seen and read this morning that God, His character is to give to you. He is immensely generous. And our posture is to learn to be grateful. You, we, friends, have been given much in every way. Um, and primarily, most importantly, He's given us His Word. Does our life reflect that this is the primary gift that God has given us? I'd encourage you to think through that. We've seen that God is absolutely faithful. It's just who He is. And we're not going to shake that off of him. He's also incredibly righteous. There's no question that you and I can bring before God that will doubt his righteousness or his faithfulness. And finally, should we just keep on sinning so that he can be more glorified? By no means. God hates our sin because he loves us that much. And my call to you this morning, friends, is to repent, to turn to him. Jesus Christ is so interested in knowing you and loving you, and he will not leave you there. I pray that we would do that this morning. Let me pray for us, and then I'll be done. Lord Jesus, grateful for who you are and grateful for my friends here at Hope Chapel. Grateful for the book of Romans written to us in love. It it is absolutely true. God, would you reveal to us your character, that you are generous, that you are faithful, that you are righteous, and that your righteousness is not something that can be moved. Your righteousness is actually something you're interested in giving to us. Pray that truth would lodge itself deep in our hearts this morning, that we would come to know you more, that we might actually leave this place loving you a bit more as well. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.